Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. In the scriptures, we have much more than just abstract religious ideas or instructions on how to live well, or even inspiring stories that contain moral messages. The scriptures are much more than just that. In fact, in the scriptures, we have history. We have the history of God's engagement with his people. We have the history of God's using his people to impact other nations and people who were far from God. And of course, the scriptures are divine revelation. Now, that doesn't mean it's some mystic knowledge, but rather in the course of history, in the course of God's engagement with humanity, God has spoken and acted, and God has inspired individuals to write it down for future generations. And he has preserved it throughout history so that you and I might have an accurate record. And yet, while the perspective that we see as we read through the scriptures is the perspective that God intended us to have, we must also take ourselves from time to time out of the shoes of the Bible's authors and to put ourselves in the shoes of others that we read about in the biblical texts, at least if we're to understand things more clearly. I'll give you an illustration. Since I'm a rather portly man, I prefer the aisle seat when I'm flying on an airplane. However, there are certain cities that when I fly into, uh, when we're making our approach, I'll look over at the window in the hopes of catching a glimpse of something special. Perhaps it's a city skyline or a particular monument or a mountain. However, I've lost count of the times that as I'm glancing out the closest window, enjoying the view, I hear oohs and ahs coming from the other side of the plane where something's in view that can't be seen from my side of the aisle. And as we consider our study in Acts, I honestly don't think that we could fully, at least, appreciate the transformation of Paul, which we're going to read about today, apart from putting ourselves in his shoes at least just for a few moments. In the first chapter of his biography on Paul, N.T. Wright paints a fairly accurate picture that I think would help us to understand a little more, perhaps to get into Paul's shoes. Saul of Tarsus was a man who grew up in a world where the Jews had suffered much because of their sin and because of God's righteous judgment in response to it. The Babylonian exile the constant oppression of foreign powers, wars against the Gentiles, and even now, in Paul's life, life under the domination of the Roman Empire. And because of all that they've endured, there was a deep concern that national sin, a turning away from God to something else, even some false teaching, would bring God's wrath upon them again. Alongside this history and these fears are the stories of zealous Jews in times past that strongly and violently opposed those who would lead Israel away from God and away from his commands. And now here is Saul of Tarsus, aware of his people's history and himself zealous for God, and in his midst comes what he perceives of as a new threat. 
And here's how N.T. Wright paints the picture. I want to read this from his book. It says, The authorities had caught up with Jesus, handed him over to the Roman authorities, and seen him killed in the most shameful way imaginable, making it clear once and for all that he was a blaspheming imposter. Who ever heard of a crucified Messiah? But now the followers of this Jesus were claiming that he's been raised from the dead. They were talking as if heaven and earth were somehow joined together in him, in this crazy, dangerous, deluded man. They were speaking as if, by comparison with this Jesus, the ancient institutions of Israel were on a lower footing. And yes, the present generation was under judgment for rejecting Jesus and his message. Stephen, on trial for his life, made matters worse. Look, he shouted, I could see heaven opened and the Son of Man standing at God's right hand. Heaven and earth opened to one another and this Jesus holding them together in prayer? Blasphemy! The court had heard enough. Stephen was rushed out of the city and crushed to death under a hail of rocks. Saul approved. This was the kind of action the Torah required. This was what zeal was supposed to look like. From that moment, the young man saw what had to be done. Several of Jesus' followers had left Jerusalem in a hurry after Stephen's death, frightened of more violence, but they had continued to spread the poison. Wherever they went, they established groups, little revolutionary cells, and propagated this new teaching, putting Jesus in the center of the picture and displacing the ancient Israelite symbols, up to and including the temple itself. From Saul's point of view, if the compromisers in the old biblical stories had been bad, this was worse. This could set the coming kingdom back. This could call down further divine wrath upon Israel. Saul, therefore, uh, set off as a new Phineas, a new Elijah. The scriptural models were clear. Torah and temple, the one God himself, were under attack from this new movement. With his Bible in his head, zeal in his heart, and official documents of authority from the chief priests in his bag, young Saul set off in the firm hope that he, too, would be recognized as a true covenant member. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. Phineas then, Saul now. So again, this wasn't scripture. This was N.T. Wright's biography of uh, Paul. And yet I would say that this gives us a, a very accurate glimpse into those formative things in Paul's life that would have, and how he would have reacted to the Christians and why he reacted in the way that we read about in the scriptures. You know, it's easy to read about the persecution of the early church and the intense hatred with which Saul pursued the Christians and think, my, how evil. However, I think that conclusion is a little too simplistic. Saul was doing what he thought was right and good and true for God and for the well-being of his people, Israel. But he certainly was off base. He certainly was on the wrong side of truth. In fact, I'm reminded of Rabbi Gamaliel's words of the, to the Sanhedrin, which we read about just a few weeks ago in our study of Acts. This is from Acts uh, 5, 38 and 39. It says, For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. 
And it's interesting, these words, because here we see that Saul was certainly fighting against God, all the while thinking that he was serving God. And his wake-up call was pretty spectacular, and that's what we're going to read about together today from the Scriptures. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Acts chapter 9, and we're going to start in the very first verse. Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice uh, say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. Last week, we recognized an important theme of the book of Acts. The mission belongs to the Lord. We just have the privilege of joining him in what he's doing. Our passage for today also demonstrates this important theme. For who but God could have changed the heart, the mind, and the worldview of Saul of Tarsus? As our passage begins, Saul is wholeheartedly committed to ridding Israel of this Christian danger. In fact, verse 1 says that he was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. In other words, he was seething with hatred. In his mind, execution was the only proper remedy. Now, that seems strong, right? In fact, this may go against our modern sensibilities. This may not cohere even with what you imagined about the eventual Apostle Apostle Paul here. But consider again the context and the position of Saul in the midst of this dilemma. He is a product 
of biblical and also non-biblical stories of how his people violently warred against those who would lead the nation in sin. And I want you to consider a biblical example and a non-biblical example, which are very, very relevant, would have been very formative to the Apostle Paul, to Saul of Tarsus throughout his life. So here's from Numbers 25, verses 1 through 15. Again, a biblical story, one from the Torah, one from Israel's history. And here's what we read in Numbers 25, 1 through 15. It says, while Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices of their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of these people, kill them, and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, Each of you must put to death those of your people who have yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. Then an Israelite man brought into the camp a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and followed the Israelite into the tent. He drove the spear into both of them, right through the Israelite man and into the woman's stomach. Then the plague against the Israelites was stopped, but those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. The Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites. Since he was as zealous for my honor among them as I am, I did not put an end to them in my zeal. Therefore, tell him I am making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of a lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. Friends, this is in biblical history. This is in the history of Israel. Again, this is history, biblical history, which Saul would have known well, having studied the Torah throughout his entire life. And what do we see in this passage? if not a man committing a righteous execution to purge sin from the people so that God's wrath would relent. I'm sure in Saul's mind, his desire to zealously purge Israel of the Christians was in the same vein as Phineas in this passage. And from history that was much closer in proximity to the time of Saul, we read in the book of 1 Maccabees of the reign of the Greek king Antiochus IV, who commanded the Jews to profane the Lord and to profane the Torah and to worship false gods. And if they failed to do so, they would have been put to death. And in that book, in 1 Maccabees, we read of this encounter from 1 Maccabees 2, 15 to 26. It says the king's officers who were enforcing the apostasy came to the town of Modane to make them, an, uh, to make them offer sacrifice. Many from Israel came to them, and Mattathias and his sons were assembled. Then the king's officers spoke to Mattathias as follows. You're a leader, honored and great in this town, and supported by sons and brothers. Now be the first to come and do what the king commands, as all the Gentiles and the people of Judah and those that are left in Jerusalem have done. Then you and your sons will be numbered among the friends of the king, and you and your sons will be honored with silver and with gold and many gifts. 
But Mattathias answered and said in a loud voice, Even if all the nations that live under the rule of the king obey him and have chosen to obey his commandments, every one of them abandoning their religion of their ancestors, and I and my sons and my brothers will continue to live by the covenant of our ancestors. Far be it from us to desert the law and the ordinances. We will not obey the king's words by turning aside from our religion to the right hand or the left. When he had finished speaking these words, a Jew came forward in the sight of all to offer sacrifice on the altar in Modain, according to the king's command. When Mattathias saw it, he burned with zeal and his heart was stirred. He gave vent to righteous anger. He ran and killed him on the altar. At the same time, he killed the king's officer who was forcing them to sacrifice, and he tore down the altar. Thus he burned with zeal for the law, just as Phinehas did against Zimri, son of Salu. And so again, here, not a biblical story, but a historical one from not long before Saul's time period here. And again, he would have known this story well. It was more than a story. It would have helped to form his worldview, the way in which he perceived of threats, which were numerous in his day, and the way he saw zeal for the Lord modeled among his people. Very formative for him. Now I ask you, what stops such a person dead in their tracks and transforms them into an ardent supporter of the very cause he had set out to destroy. What could possibly take this man, Saul of Tarsus, so formed by history, so set in his worldview and his presuppositions, and completely change his course? What instantly and completely deconstructs his worldview so that he could put it back together piece by piece correctly? Of course, the Sunday school answer works here. God. Again, the mission belongs to the Lord, right? And the Almighty God knows how to get through the hardest of hearts. However, more specifically, God got through to Saul by a visit from the resurrected Jesus. Paul is counted among those who received a post-mortem appearance of Jesus. And it utterly and permanently transformed him. While our passage doesn't describe Paul's mental process through this ordeal, and it doesn't wrap it all up in a nice little bow like, and Paul repented of his sins, believed the truth, and surrendered to the lordship of Jesus, we do know that this was the case. How? I remind you of verses 17 through 19. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placed his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And so we see several important confirmations of Saul's transformation here in this passage. Ananias refers to him as a brother. He was being prayed for to receive the Holy Spirit, something which only takes place for believers. Saul was baptized, and Saul stayed with the disciples, and he didn't arrest them. <laughs> and of course, we get to read about his journey throughout the remainder of our book of Acts. As we consider our passage for today, there are a few very important things 
that I really hope we'll grab hold of today. Here's the first one. We must never assume that someone is beyond God's reach. We must never assume that someone is beyond God's reach. Now, I'm not going to say that no one is beyond God's reach, because I, don't, because I do believe that God gave humanity free will. And so there are those who, despite God's desire to save them, will resist him. However, what I will say is this, that we must never assume that someone is beyond God's reach. Not to be crass, but I want to paint a picture here. Saul would have had much in common with a leading Muslim jihadist in our day. Think about this. He believed he was right and his enemies were wrong. He believed that he was justified before God to kill those who opposed him. He even thought he would be rewarded by God for his zealous violence. Does that sound familiar? And yet I dare say that there are people in our midst who we believe are beyond God's reach because they are angry, mean, drug addicts, womanizers, gay, Democrats, Republicans. Boy, do we not give God much credit. When we size someone up in a moment and just assume that they're beyond God's reach, unable to be redeemed, we do not give God much credit at all. Believe me, if God could get through to Saul, God can get through to anyone we may have thought that was too hard-hearted for salvation. And as we already covered, the mission belongs to the Lord. And we're privileged to be a part of it. And so that means that we need to seek opportunities to stand in the gap, to demonstrate the love of Christ, to proclaim the gospel, regardless of whether the person seems likely or unlikely to respond well to the gospel. So that's the first thing. We must never assume someone is beyond God's reach. Here's the second. God redeems and sanctifies broken people. I'll say it again. God redeems and sanctifies broken people. We know who Saul of Tarsus was. We've just read about what he believed, and we have seen what he has done in the book of Acts thus far. Guess what? He knew it too. In fact, I want to, this is his words to his protege, uh, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 16. He says this, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst but for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now, for the record, the saying that Paul was quoting here, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, that was it. That was the saying. To that, 
Paul added, of whom I am the worst. In fact, over and over and over again in both his writings and in his speeches and acts, we see Paul's recognition of how sinful he was. And in that, we see how great God's grace is. I'm sure that Paul would clearly acknowledge that he's not worthy of God's forgiveness. In fact, he speaks of God's salvation as grace, unmerited favor, undeserved favor. I'm sure that Paul would have been content enough to merely be forgiven of his sins. He would have been content enough to merely be included among the Lord's people. But God didn't stop there. Despite Paul's sin, God not only redeemed, but lifted him up to a high office to serve the Lord in an amazing capacity as an apostle and in amazing ways. Think about this. Most of the New Testament is written by Paul. Many of the churches we read about in the New Testament were either established by Paul or benefited from his apostleship. Countless people came to faith in Christ through Paul's proclamation of the gospel or through those who Paul led to faith. This is the case because God doesn't hold grudges. When God forgives, he forgives completely. He is a God of redemption, a God of restoration, a God of sanctification. He gives new life and he gives new purpose to the broken. Friends, I don't care who you are or what you've done in your life. There is no ceiling, no cap to what God can do in and through you. It doesn't matter if you didn't have as much education as someone else. It doesn't matter if English isn't your primary language. It doesn't matter if you've been divorced. It doesn't matter if your pre-Christian reputation has followed you throughout your life. It doesn't matter if you've been in prison. And I could go on and on and on. But I think Paul said it best, and I want to give you his words to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So be encouraged, because we serve an amazing God who has loved the world so much that he has been on mission throughout human history. And so let's join him on his mission, remembering never to assume that someone is beyond God's reach, because this is God we're talking about. I told you a few weeks ago, the friend who led me to faith in Christ almost didn't because she assumed that I would, I would reject the gospel. Please don't ever make that kind of assumption about anybody. And let's also remember that God is powerful enough and compassionate enough to redeem and sanctify the broken, even us. Don't place yourself on the sidelines because you can't imagine God using you. He can. 
He will. So be willing to let him be glorified in your life, in your ministry, and in your mission.